Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdall. What are the high-value metals and minerals that we're seeing in the wastewater streams that we're sampling? And how do we focus on those to find a market for those? So that is your, even magnesium, there's a relatively good market for that. And some of these other metals that we could be going after, I think that's kind of our first step. And then as we kind of become experts on those first steps, then we can kind of look at how do we increase our ability to go after more and more things. All right, Lacey, thanks so much for joining the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Great to be here. Thanks, Nick. So I always love to start by kind of asking guests how they got started working in climate. Do you mind sharing a little bit of that with our listeners? Yeah. So I'll start by saying um, in college, I was really fascinated with sustainability. I don't think I had transitioned or really thought about the idea of climate yet, but I was really thinking about uh, the fact that I came from, I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, one of the poorest states in the country. And I was really concerned with the effects of toxic loads on vulnerable communities. And I felt like focusing on sustainability would improve the quality of life for people from communities like mine. And so that's essentially what I went to school for. I I did civil engineering with a concentration in environmental engineering and water resources. I ended up working for a couple of cities, my hometown of Jackson, Mississippi, and then also the city of Atlanta, doing a lot of infrastructure work, water infrastructure work. And I think that that's also where I felt like I could have a large impact. And I saw the impact of basically not having access to clean water or the effects of like water damage to different communities. And so anyway, that's kind of where the spark of wanting to do something really around sustainability started. And then when I moved, I moved to California in 2018 and I really started looking at it from a climate lens, mainly because drought was becoming more and more common in California. And Really, as I started being a part of these conversations related to climate, a lot of people were focused on drawing down carbon and carbon removal. And I think there was less of an emphasis at the time on what are the effects as climate changes. And to me, I really wanted to focus on water and our access to water because I felt like no matter what happened, you know, that was something that was going to be vital for our survival. But really, that's kind of like where I felt like I could really give my voice and have an impact. And so that's kind of how I was able to take this journey on creating olecan minerals, mainly because I was looking at the climate problem from the lens of where is our water going to come from? Yeah, I love that because I don't know, it's easy these days to kind of feel like everything in climate gets reduced down to this like carbon removal or carbon sequestration potential question of like, we look at everything in nature from forest to the ocean is like, oh, how much like carbon could this store? And so much talk about like decarbonization, but you're right that there's a bunch of other angles, super important angles to approach any climate question from. And water is obviously a huge one of those. I'd also be curious to hear more because it's a really cool story that you actually went, you know, post-college back to Jackson to do some work there. I'd be curious to hear what some of that kind of formative first work that you did around water in Jackson actually looked like. Yeah. So I will say I'll go all the way back. My first job was in the Bay Area of California doing basically commercial building construction management. And I was really thinking that I could do something around 
uh, lead construction, so creating green buildings. But I think I really wanted to do something that was more impactful. And I felt like, you know, starting out, you feel like you're kind of just like learning from someone else, but you're not really having a direct impact on anyone really. (laughs) So I think the idea of going back to Jackson was just like, I want to like feel like the work that I'm doing is actually having an impact on somebody's life in a positive way. And I got the opportunity to work under someone who I really respect and admire, Keisha Powell. She was the first woman and woman of color to be the public works director for my hometown, the city of Jackson. And at that time, the city had just passed a 1% sales tax to improve the infrastructure within the city. And I was going to be able to kind of lead that work at like 25. (laughs) So, you know, it was definitely a great opportunity to start really early. But I think it spoke mainly to the fact that Jackson, Mississippi wasn't necessarily a very desirable place for a lot of people that a lot of people wanted to go. So I think that also allowed me the opportunity to have more responsibility at a younger age. And basically going back, we looked at what are all of the problems? And we first did a survey of what are the water lines that needed to be repaired or that were aging quicker than we could actually repair? What are the bridges that were (laughs) very close to the end of their life? What are the roads that needed to be rebuilt? Doing a survey of all of that, you realize how large of a problem we were facing and the fact that we weren't unique. Like this was a problem that most major cities are going through. And then also you got to really meet the community and realize that these people, you know, not having access to water affects your life in so many different ways. It's not just drinking from a faucet, but also your ability to clean yourself, to clean your clothes. Like there's so much that's affected by not having access to that water. And I think just having that experience really made me aware of the fact that this was like such a huge thing that we took for granted. I mean, I certainly can't imagine life without, you know, immediate and prevalent access to water. And it's a super relevant topic, not just because, as you said, like in the US, there's a big problem with aging infrastructure. You know, people always think about Flint, Michigan as the core example, but obviously that's an issue in other places like Jackson, but also with drought. You know, I think I was reading the other day about how in Monterey, Mexico, like they're actually like rationing water right now. And they're, you know, a lot of people's taps have gone dry there or residents at least because water is being conserved for industry and stuff like that. And, you know, unfortunately, that's something that could become true in the Western states of the US at some point too. So yeah, it's super pertinent. And one thing I also say to that too, I mean, you saw it in South Africa, Cape Town almost went to day zero where they ran out of water. And it's becoming more and more of an issue, even outside of just the Western U.S. and and some of these drought prone areas. When I I was a watershed program manager in the city of Atlanta, and while I was there, America Seam Reed was building the Westside Quarry Park. And part of that quarry park was creating the Bellwood Quarry or filling the Bellwood Quarry up with a 30-day emergency water supply because he realized that if we didn't have an emergency water supply, if the city of Atlanta ran out of water, we would be losing, I think about a million dollars, don't quote me on that one, but we would be losing a significant <laughs> amount of money per day and the millions of dollars. If oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Water run out of water. So that's something that I think people don't realize that it's not just like you not having access to water, but the fact that industries, in order to just run life, require water to do you know those activities. Absolutely. And so fast forwarding to today, you've founded your own company. I'd love to have you get folks up to speed on what you do at Olakin Minerals and kind of how that ties into this conversation that we're having about water so far. Yeah. So essentially what we're doing with Olakin Minerals is we are looking at how do we make 
things like desalination more sustainable? How do we increase our clean water supply? As climate changes, we'll see more salt water levels or water that has some kind of salt concentration, and we'll see a decreased level of fresh water. And we need that fresh water to live. So essentially what we're focused on is filtering out those salts so that we can increase our clean water supply and then finding a solution for the salts, metals, and minerals that we filter out. And so essentially what we're trying to do is create a circular solution for providing clean water and then also making sure that we have the natural resources that we're going to need in order to get to 100% renewables and then also just have the resources needed for the supply chains of the future. So I think we're trying to solve both problems at the same time. Yeah, no, there's two interesting strands there, as you mentioned, like there's the actual remediation of the water itself and kind of making it usable, depending on, you know, it could have lots of different things in it that might need to be filtered out. But then there's also the valorizing of some of those minerals that you might be able to recover from the water, which is kind of another interesting piece of the business. What is kind of like, let's, you mentioned desalination first, so maybe we can talk about that a little bit. What are some of like the first applications where you're already kind of testing how your technology might work? Is desalination one of them? Yeah. So when you talk about desalination, a lot of people think about seawater desalination. So desalination facilities that might exist on the coast. Carlsbad in the San Diego area is probably the, the largest one in the Western Hemisphere. But outside of that, you're seeing more and more groundwater, brown brackish water desalination. So these are desalination facilities that are a little bit more inland. And what they're seeing is some kind of salt mineral concentration that's higher than desired in the groundwater. And they need to filter that out in order for it to be drinkable. So that's kind of our first pilot is working with water utility in the Central Valley to figure out if we can find a solution for their groundwater. And essentially what that allows us to do is create clean water or potentially help create clean water for the community in that area, which might be an economically disadvantaged area, but it's also an agricultural community. So having clean water also affects the food supply for about 25 million people. So that's one of the first, I guess, applications or customers that we've been looking at. But outside of that, you know, there's the ability to look at geothermal brines or look at wastewaters from mining or wastewaters from the oil and gas industry. I think there's a few other different applications, but we, we are focused on desalination as kind of like our first industry uh, or first focus area at the moment. Yeah, no, I mean, I can imagine there's lots of different potential applications down the road. With this first one kind of around the inland desalination and their brackish water, what does kind of that evaluation process look like when you're working with some of these other local stakeholders? You know, what is on a day-to-day basis, what are you all kind of working on and looking at to, uh, is it understanding, you know, what's in the water and then also figuring out like the technology to remediate it? What does that whole process look like? So, you know, first, I think we would say we have kind of like a five-step process, but the first thing that we have to do is really talk to the leaders of that community, whether it's the manager of the water utility or the neighbors in the area. We really want to understand kind of what did this look like before we got there? And what are the issues that they've already kind of found and what are they looking to help get resolved? And so that's done through kind of like an initial interview kind of process. Then we collect samples. So we collect source water and then take those to a lab to really understand the concentrations. So we're looking at what are the organic compounds within that water source, the metals and ions. And then also what are the things that we might not be able to do anything with? you know, arsenic might be something that you might find in water. So what are you going to do with that? And how does that affect our process? 
after we identify what those concentrations are, those are important for us to understand as we test our system and we have an ability to test how efficient that system is. And the only way that we can test efficiency is really understanding what was in it before and what do we get out after. And then from there, what we're looking at is once we figured out what we can actually extract, what are the markets that those can sell into? And it might be kind of outside of what we had looked at before. And there might be a higher concentration of a particular metal mineral ion that we just haven't really explored as much before. So I think working with a customer directly allows us to explore that with them so that we can understand and come up with a solution that's unique to their problem. And then finally, you know, what we want to give them a final deliverable to them is, is a feasibility study on what this could look like. And if this could potentially be like a profit sharing agreement with them or, or some kind of revenue stream outside of what they're already doing. Gotcha. And so, you know, without giving away too many trade secrets, obviously, like what are the actual technologies for removing and or reclaiming some of those minerals look like? Yeah. So I'll go a little bit broad and then <laughs> and then try and go into like what we, we're kind of exploring at the moment. So let's look at lithium because I think that that's one of interest to a lot of people and the ways that we extract lithium today. You might look at hard rock mining. So hard, like taking hard rock and finding ways to extract it from the earth. A lot of times you kind of burn off those impurities. So in that burning process, of course, you're creating a lot of carbon emissions. And so that's probably like the least environmentally friendly way to get your lithium. The second would be hydrometallurgy, which is really big in South America right now. And essentially that's taking pumping brines up from underneath the earth, mixing it with a number of different chemicals. And then after it's been separated, allowing the sun to evaporate off any of that liquid. So you're left with a dry substance at the end. The issue with that is, of course, the amount of chemicals that goes into that process, the amount of time it takes to dry, um, and the fact that it's in these very large beds that's exposed to the environment. So wildlife in that area could potentially have access to that water and, and it could be harmful to them because of the amount of chemicals involved in the process. Gotcha. So it's like ecosystem disruption to an extent too. Exactly. And so the next would be uh, direct lithium extraction. And this is a, another further advancement. It's the idea of using membranes as a way to separate out that lithium. You might use ion exchange membranes as a way to do that. You're still using hydrochloric acid a lot of times in that process, and you can only extract lithium. You can't really do anything else. So if there's anything else within that waste stream or that water stream, you're kind of losing access to that as you hyper-focus on just lithium extraction. So what we're looking at, we're exploring a way to basically try and filter out multiple things at the same time. That's what we really want to get to. And really, you know, chromatography is not necessarily new at all. And the way that I try to explain chromatography is if you took a piece of paper and you had a black, if you had a black pen or black ink, you put a, a black dot on that piece of paper and then you put that paper in water. Water will start to creep up that paper if you'd like dip it in at the very edge of the water or at, at the, <laughs> yes, you know what I'm trying to say. And then as it, as it reaches that black dot, the black dot will start to spread across that paper. And what you'll start to see is that that black dot is actually made up of a number of different other inks. So you might have red, you might have green, and you won't, you'll start to see it separate as the water moves up the paper. That's kind of an example of what we're seeing with chromatography. As you put like a wastewater stream through a resin, the different minerals that make up the concentration of that 
brine water will start to separate out and then like particles will start to come together with like particles. And so that's kind of how we're able to see like lithium chloride and then magnesium and then sodium. So they'll start separating out. And then that's a way for us to kind of focus in on capturing a high purity lithium or high purity magnesium because they've already separated out through the chromatography system. Yeah, it's funny that you said chromatography isn't new. It's uh, it's definitely new to me, and it sounds uh, it sounds quite fascinating. I need to do a bit more reading on it, but it does also. I was going to ask that question because you know, even in kind of more basic water filtration, sometimes people use you know multiple systems for organics and metals, whether it be like a membrane and ion exchange stuff. But it is you know, it sounds promising that you all are able to tackle a variety of different things to potentially remediate and recover from water with one process. Yeah, and and again, I will say chromatography used as water fil- for water filtration is somewhat new, but it has been used. the The actual chromatography system is not necessarily new. The way that we're applying it, I think, is is new. And so, in the example you gave earlier about, you know, you might identify that there's some arsenic in water, for example, and perhaps the technologies that you're developing wouldn't be best suited to deal with that. What happens in that scenario? Is that kind of like a back to the drawing board, see if there's something else we can do about it, or is it potentially like not the best site for you all to start with? I will say that a site that's high in, in toxic chemicals probably isn't the best for us uh, because that's a big responsibility to take on. But there are companies and um, services that really specialize in handling environmental remediation of a lot of these different toxic chemicals. We are not that yet. I do think that there's an opportunity there to really figure out like what is the best way to deal with it. But right now we're just using traditional disposal methods as a way to deal with that problem when it arises for us. Understood. And kind of getting into the business model side of things a little bit, do you look for scenarios where, you know, what you might be recovering from waters is also something that has kind of like a vibrant end market for it? Like lithium is obviously a good example where you're not just going to be able to clean up the water, but like there's definitely also a market for selling those metals again on the other side. Or are there scenarios where just remediating the water itself is a viable business for you all? I think advice that I got recently that is kind of dictating these decisions or helping me to understand how to go about making decisions is even though you're an impact business, you have to be a business first, not impact first. And because the most sustainable business is a business that actually is a business, you can't really be a business unless you like have, if you're able to be profitable and can sustain yourself long-term. I say that mainly because my focus going in was how do we filter out as many minerals and metals as possible so that we get as much clean water at the end that we can. And that might be the end goal. So that is something that I still strive to, but it's not necessarily the first step right now. So our first step right now is really focused on what are the high value metals and minerals that we're seeing in the wastewater streams that we're sampling and how do we focus on those to find a market for those? So that is your, even magnesium, there's a relatively good market for that. And some of these other metals that we could be going after, I think that's kind of our first step. And then as we kind of become experts on those first steps, then we can kind of look at how do we increase our ability to go after more and more things. It's like the more, the longer you can stay in business and really grow, especially the more climate impact you make down the road. So if that means focusing on a little bit more of a narrow subset of minerals for now, I don't think that's still perfectly laudable and there's still a lot of impact in that. So that makes sense. It also ties into kind of like the broader capitalization question, which is I'd be curious kind of outside of the technology 
what you know founding the business and building it has has been like for the past few years and and also what stage that's in yeah so i would say we're still you know pre-seed we're doing pilot testing now but it's really being funded by grants so i would say we're still relatively pre-revenue we are also i think climate has been a big topic over the last few years i think ever since i want to say it became a huge trend during the pandemic and I think because of that, there is a good amount of money going into the field. So there's a good amount of capital, both from the government as well as from the private sector that is really interested in what we're doing in, in across the board, climate as a whole. I think there's a lot of money going into climate. I do think that the recent kind of economic swing, um, so it went from like, like a booming market to not so booming, has shifted some things. But at the end of the day, I think people are aware that this is a problem that we need to solve relatively quickly. So access to capital is still, I would say, there. It's just really trying to navigate how comfortable people are with making certain investments and then making ourselves available to grant opportunities as well. So we've been able to kind of move forward with just grants thus far. And Fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Um, but we are the great thing about private capital, investment capital, is your ability to move quickly. And I think because this problem is so urgent, we do need a mix of both. I think we need a mix of both grants and private capital that allows us to get some things done as quick as we can. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, congrats on the grants. First of all, I know that, you know, filling out and applying for those in the first place is no small feat that takes a ton of time and, and it can be highly selective. But um yeah, the fundraising climate for technologies like yours in the private markets is definitely at an interesting inflection point. It's not by any means as easy to raise as it was six months ago, I'm sure. But, you know, fortunately, we are still seeing more resilience than I think some other quote unquote sectors. So I'm optimistic for you all still. And uh, <laughs> I think uh, I think it'll come together. Thanks. Thank you. What are the other kind of, you know, you're obviously working on some really sophisticated technical challenges. There's the capitalization of the business, which is its own challenge. What are some of the other things that you know maybe you didn't foresee before founding a business that have surprised you and, and been really hard? I think to a certain extent, I think about human or basically like the idea of employees, and this is something that every business owner has to think about as well. You're not just solving a problem in a silo by yourself. You're solving it as a team or and as the business grows, the team grows. So making sure that everyone's aware of you know what they could be contributing and how you can best allow them like the runway to you know do what they do best and i think that's something that i am learning to be better at <laughs> um, is really setting the vision and also allowing making sure people know kind of the direction we're going but allowing them to also contribute in their own individual ways as well is yeah i think that's also and also being basically knowing how to ask for help and you know what your expectations are when you ask for help like that whole process i think is like new to me or not new to me it's just it's like something that i am learning to do as i basically you're building this plane as you're flying and at the same time you're building <laughs> the plane as you're flying you're trying to like tell other people how to help you build a plane so that that whole deal is, is a little tricky i sympathize with those things a lot yeah, I haven't always found myself to be like the most intuitive manager of other people, like empowering them to work in their own way, especially when it's like pretty different from the way you work. That's definitely uniquely challenging. How big is your team, by the way? How many folks are, are working 
with you and for you. And I, honestly, I, I never would like to say for me, because I think we're all like helping <laughs> to, we're all kind of contributing as a team. And I'm just, I'm the person that came up with the idea and, and helping to- Working together. Yeah. So we're working together. Um, but we have, so I, they're about myself and then I'm the only one that's full-time. We have four other people involved that are part-time. So we have currently a team of five. Fast forwarding, you know, let's say we're five years in the future. What's kind of like the range of applications you could see the technology being applied to by that point in time, provided, you know, everything goes super, super well? Within the next five years or by in a five-year time frame, I hope to be really providing some level of lithium resources for the battery and electronics industry, also using or extracting magnesium for the use of aluminum and steel manufacturing. Would love to also get out to using potassium used for fertilizers, supplying that market in certain ways, Um, using extracting calcium that could be used for concrete aggregate is something that I think would be interesting and that we could potentially do. And then of course, sodium and really utilizing sodium and the sodium chloride for food, as we know, but also for glass and paper and, and certain textiles. I would love to see the things that we extract be utilized in a number of different industries across the board. And I think that that's kind of what I would love to see happen. And then also too, I think really like shooting for the moon here, I think what we'll probably also be working on is how do we use what we've learned about creating circular solutions to potentially be used, you know, outside of the US? Like if we were, I mean, outside of even for global applications here on earth, but as we explore space and understanding what are the needs for space, how do we use what we're learning to help with those industries, the space exploration as well? That's super interesting. I mean, fundamentally, you're spending so much time thinking about revalorizing waste. Like if we're going to attempt to build anything outside the confines of the earth, that's obviously going to be a massive consideration. It should be super important and super prevalent on the earth, but like it gets even more important when you have the constraints of not having (laughs) as abundant a planet as ours. Exactly. And I think that there's lessons to be learned. So I really feel like creating circular solutions is just going to be the future, no matter where you are and what you're doing. So I think if we can think about that now, it'll be interesting how that plays into the future. Like what, how do we build on those solutions as we grow? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting framework. It's like more of a forcing function, even it's like if we didn't have another choice, you know, if you were trying to do this on Mars, like what would you do? (laughs) Obviously it might be more expensive in the short term, but it could yield a lot of benefit in the long term. And what terms of, we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, desalination obviously being a big one, but what waste streams do you feel like you'd, or bodies of water do you feel like, types of bodies of water do you feel like you'd be working on at that point? So I think in, in the next five years, our, the goal is really to have this solution be used globally as well. You know, this is not just a problem that we're seeing with desalination facilities in the mining industry, by oil and gas within the U.S. You know, even if we looked at desalination globally, the Middle East, Israel, there's a number of other places around the world, uh, even if we just focused on desalination over the next five years, that this could be applicable to and be of value. Right. No small market in desalination alone. (laughs) Yeah. So I really feel like the idea is like, how do we make this a solution that can really scale globally first? Or not first, but could scale globally. And how do we make it accessible for those countries that would find this the most valuable? 
That makes sense as far as a focus is concerned. It's like once you get to that point, there'll be no shortage of different sources of briny water out there that will probably be... Zooming out a little bit, what other companies, other climate technologies are you excited about? It doesn't have to be related to um, water, but certainly can be. Being a part of different accelerators, incubators, you really get to know or you get to see different companies that are really exciting. So transportation, I think, is really interesting. It's something that we're not directly in outside of potentially supplying for batteries. But I really am really excited about not only seeing more electric vehicles, but seeing companies specifically focused on electric vehicle infrastructure needed to just get us all to make electrical vehicles be a reliable transportation source. I'm also excited about flight and how changing the fuels or making potentially electric, what that's going to look like. And, and in general, kind of like, how do we phase out of being so reliant on fossil fuels? And what is that going to look like in the future? So transportation is a big one for me. I was just going to say, as someone who flies a lot, I'm the same way. I'm like, man, I really hope we get to the point where we can <laughs> get these numbers down a little bit because I do love jumping back and forth across the coast a decent amount. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's a number of different companies I can shout out there with transportation, whether it's Volt Post, which is doing basically charging stations on Lamp Post, also Charger Help and ChargeNet. <laughs> like, there's a few other companies in that space that are doing some really great work. And then outside of that, I would say just food. I'm really rooting for us to, to solve, making sure that we that everyone has access to food as we transition as well. So any company that's working in, in agriculture, I, I think I would say I'm rooting for. Talk about another area where there's an opportunity to do more with the same amount or do more with less. It's like we waste so much of it. When you talk to founders at some of these companies, or folks that you are working there, do you find that, you know, a lot of y'all are kind of focusing on the same types of challenges, regardless of the fact that the climate problems that you're tackling are, are pretty different in some ways? I will say that it's almost like we're working around the same skeleton, but building different bodies, if that makes sense. So I think the core of your business, just regular business systems and operations are relatively the same, no matter kind of like what business you're doing. You still have to follow the rules. You still have to pay your taxes. There's like still very much like fundamental things that we all have to follow. And it's really interesting to collaborate or just learn from how other people solve those just fundamental problems or within operations. And then it's also to like, even though we're tackling different problems, there might be overlap or there might be opportunities that we get access to that we can help each other with. So it feels like we're all kind of on the same team, but with different superpowers. Like if we're all kind of like the Avengers, I don't know, just, just like a, a group of like superheroes or whatever, we're all kind of tackling different problems within the same space, hoping at the end of the day to save the world. No, I love that. It speaks to that's something that you definitely hear from folks working in the space a lot is just how collaborative it can be, even when it's companies working on ostensibly like pretty similar stuff as opposed to different stuff. Yeah. And, and I think it's really the, the idea is, you know, I hope you succeed because either we all succeed or, you know, we might all not. So even if it's not me, I hope we figure this out and we find solutions that can move us forward. I love that. It's a good note to close on. Lacey, thanks so much for being on. Thank you so much as well. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.